I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Light Through, episode 296, my interview with Agnieszka Szczeko-Zukowska. Now, Agnieszka is a Polish PhD student. She's researching social media. And I interviewed her the other day. I was interested in how the war that's raging in Ukraine, just over her border, was affecting her, her family, and her work. And for those of you who have been listening to this Light On, Light Through podcast, this is the third interview I've done in the last few months, beginning with Grzegorz Kwiatowski, a Polish poet who wrote a book called Crops about the Holocaust and is also a member of the band Trupa Trupa, who happened to now be touring the United States and they're getting great reviews. So I interviewed him in the very first days of the war in Ukraine about how this was affecting him and his poetry and his music. And then a few weeks ago, I interviewed Katya Yakovlenko. She is a Ukrainian PhD student, and I was very interested in what her thoughts were on this war. So, without any further ado, let's get right to the interview. The Light on Light Through podcast. Agnieszka Zukowska. And she is a PhD student at the University of Warsaw in Poland. Her specialty is social media. She and I are working on a project. And so that's how I got to know Agnieszka in the first place. And like everyone else in the world, but especially in her area of the world, she's been very affected by the horrible Russian invasion of Ukraine. And let me just mention, this is actually part of uh, a continuing series that I began back in March when I had Zygors Kwiatkowski, who is a uh, Polish poet. He wrote and published a book called Crops about the Holocaust. He's also a member of a band, Trupa Trupa, and they're now touring the United States and getting rave reviews. And then a couple of weeks ago, I had Katya Yakovlenko, who is a Ukrainian PhD student. And we had a very interesting interview about the impact of the Russian invasion on her. She's written a very good article uh, about Ukrainian voices. So with that, Agnieszka, you actually just told me before we started this interview that you actually have a Ukrainian heritage. Uh, So in addition to being Polish and in Poland, you, you have really a special connection to the horrors that are going on over your border. Yeah, it's more of a family legend, so to say, than a historically proven fact. But yeah, my um, my my family name indicates that uh, my fam- family came from Ukraine, and there were some uh, researches in my in family going on to find out from which part of the Ukraine our family might have uh, uh, come here to Poland but yeah the majority of my family of my uh, both my parents and both my mother and father's side uh, lives very near to the border actually to the Hrebenne um, border point uh, so uh, yeah this is another um, so to say personal connection that I have with this uh, whole situation Yeah, so obviously Poland has had a long history of terrible relations with Russia and the Soviet Union, as everyone knows, for for many, many years, and I grew up in that world. Poland was just, you know, another communist satellite of the Soviet Union. But I actually came to know Poland much better since the decline and fall of the Soviet Union. And it turns out that uh, the only country which has had more of my books translated 
from English into uh, this other language than Poland is China. But even China does not have the distinction of having not only my nonfiction books translated to Chinese, but some of my science fiction books as well. So I always had a very high opinion of Poland and the Polish people, but uh, it, it became even more important to me when I saw how well they did those translations. Of course, I don't read or speak Polish, so I'm, I'm told that the translations are good by people that I trust. But why don't we get into what happened when it, it now seems like this war has been going on forever, but of course, it just started in, in February. You were already, you know, working hard, doing a lot of things. Life was difficult enough before the Russian invasion. The, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic is still going on. And, uh, you know, you, like everyone else, are struggling to be okay and get your work done. And you also have, uh, when we first started communicating. You had a five-year-old daughter. Now she's six years old. So uh, why don't you tell us what it was like, how it hit you when you first got the news about the, the Russian invasion of your next-door neighbor? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, you are right that we, uh, like, smoothly transitioned from one great uh, global and local crisis, uh, aka pandemic, to another uh, great crisis called uh, war just next door. Um, so yeah, it was a smooth, smooth transition. We didn't have a chance to, you know, recover from one very traumatic, in a way, um, experience. And um, how it found me, the, the news about the war, I think that as we all uh, did, I was also uh, hoping or trying not to believe that it will happen, but it happened. And um, for the first uh, few days, I think we, we or I, I didn't even have a chance to uh, reflect on it too much because we just very... Uh, briefly very uh, dynamically uh, came into this uh, phase of uh, uh, of very intense uh, coordination uh, work like coordinating the humanitarian aid and just figuring out what we can do as like individuals but also as uh, yeah as students of the university as a members of the academia, as well as, uh, I don't know, the citizens who are running businesses and who are, you know, leading their professional lives and uh, that are cooperating with uh, another companies. I'm working um, besides, like I'm PhD students, but I also run um, a small uh, marketing and communication uh, company with uh, with my husband, and we are cooperating with uh, uh, some uh, big fr French uh, company who is having um, its uh, retail store chains in Ukraine. So it was obvious for us that we have to uh, find out how to help uh, the employees of the company there. So yeah, that was the first objective in this, um, in this early days of the war. So yeah, so uh, the, the thing that, uh, or the, uh, the experience that uh, is the most evident for me when I think of this early days is this uh, very uh, strong mobilization of our workforces, our, our uh, you know, m mind forces, how so to say it, uh, to, to, to find out what, what we can do. Uh, like the war, um, the war started on Thursday and on Friday, I was already, I was already um, dialing with uh, the reception points that were organized, that has been in the process of establishing 
in a various uh, border points uh, on, on the Polish border and trying to find out what do they need, what kind of, I don't know, supplies and everything. Um, yeah, so the strong mobilization and a very, uh, very, very strong feeling of responsibility for acting. This is the thing that, uh, uh, that strikes me now when I think back uh about this like two months right two months yep two months again it seems much longer i mean that's that's the way yeah. psychology is that's because it was so intense and so packed with uh, various experiences are are the people in poland because we really don't have much idea here in the united states you know we get reports but just like on a personal visceral level are the people in Poland concerned that Russia could somehow go crazy and attack Poland also? Or is that something that you just think won't happen? Obviously, Poland, as part of NATO, if, if Russia ever did that, then that would just open up a complete world war. So what, what, what's the feeling, as far as you know, as far as the Polish people about that? Um. Of course, I uh, didn't uh, make any uh, in-depth research on, on that, but um, from my perspective of a culture studies researcher or wannabe researcher, I was, uh, among many other things that I was doing, I was also uh, trying to you know do some ethnographic work or uh, call it uh, call my uh, you know scrolling facebook scrolling and other social media scrollings and ethnographic work uh, i was uh, looking at the various facebook groups thematic groups that were gathering uh, uh, mostly young people and what i noticed and that was interesting for me was that um, yeah in those first days the the question about are we gonna be next was raised pretty often I guess and uh, people especially young people were trying to uh, figure out if there is a real chance of being attacked as a consequence of the war in Ukraine and there was a big uh, need of uh, getting some um, information of um, knowing and getting to know more about the, uh, you know the whole global um, the whole global global relations that are determining that and of course there were like many um, many information being uh, transmitted about, as you said, about uh, NATO and all the uh, global uh, network of dependencies that are uh, making this threat of being attacked less uh, mm, less real, uh, so to say. But this feeling, when you, when you ask about the feeling, I think we uh, we all. Um, we all shared it. I remember having, if you ask about also about the personal experience, I remember having very vivid dreams about, uh, you know, nuclear uh, weapons being used against Poland. It was something, you know, very, um, I would say, uh, maybe not, it wasn't rational, it was just an emotional and uh, atavistic maybe reaction to hold all the news, all the you know telegram channels scrolling with the uh, current flow of uh, of news about the the current situation in, in Ukraine. So uh, so yeah, it was uh, it, it was a topic being discussed in uh, in various uh, circuits of of con of content in, in social media. Uh, but also in national media. Yeah, it's interesting. I grew up, uh, and my wife and everyone in our general age, uh, in a world in which both the Soviet Union and the United States were armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. 
and you know you've probably heard the term mutually assured destruction that that's basically what kept people sane meaning that that no either one neither the soviet union nor the united states would ever launch a nuclear attack on the other because if that happened that would just be the end of the world uh, you know both moscow and new york etc would be destroyed so that was in an odd way comforting but when the soviet union fell apart everyone here sort of breathed a sigh of relief and of course in retrospect we wrongly thought that okay we, the world got over this the world got through this uh boris yeltsin became president of russia he, he was a little bit of a drunkard but he otherwise seemed you know to be a pretty reasonable guy and so this attack on ukraine basically turned that feeling of assurance and safety upside down and, and you know even here in new york i mean it's a strange thing you know you, you were saying it's a dream it's not rational but it is rational in a way i, I heard just the other day that um over in russia what newscasters are doing who and they're of course uh, under putin's thumb and saying things that he would enjoy hearing they, they keep talking about hey maybe we'll just send some nuclear weapons to new york blow up new york and that'll teach the united states to to mind their own business and I, you know i don't like hearing those things we have kids and grandkids here in new york when i hear something like that obviously the last thing i'm going to do at my age is like pick up a weapon and join an army but when i hear stuff like that i i you know i i'm hoping that putin drops dead anyway so the fear of of nuclear attack which unfortunately began in part because or maybe even completely because that's the way the us ended world war ii but it's been with us ever since then and you know the damage that it can do is is incredibly destructive but let's get to something else that you mentioned because uh for both of us social media are a major area of interest so and you mentioned reading things on telegram so in your experience as a phd student who was especially interested in social media and studying social media what role uh, from your perspective have social media played in this conflict or at least in how the conflict is perceived in poland well i guess that and it's uh, probably uh, an obvious thing to say that social media are the main channels where uh, this uh, war is being broadcasted almost live for uh for the polish people but also for the for the world i guess and um that um the topic of uh, the information war and how the news uh, are spread by both sides of uh, like both sides like the, the from mm, by Russia, but also by Ukraine. Uh, this is the, uh, the very interesting topic, and I've used it with the students that I'm teaching uh, teaching on some uh, on a basic anthropology course that I'm uh, that I'm running. I use this uh, exam, the didactic example of uh, um, of uh, Ukrainian uh, narratives uh, that are being planted in social media to talk more about the the power of narration and the power of speculative or um, yeah speculative na narrations uh, that have uh, this uh, yeah they have this power of uh, um, prefigurating the the future shape of the world maybe even so uh, yeah we were talking about uh, how uh, president zelensky is uh, is presented in memes in uh, the in videos uh, how his uh, social persona of a former actor who is playing his major life role probably um 
uh, is acting uh, or all the news about uh, you know babushkas uh, poisoning the, the pierogies and giving them to russian soldiers these are very powerful narratives that are uh, going viral everywhere and are supporting the uh, uh, the image of ukraine as a uh, as a as a country in this um, elite of uh, the, the Western world, of the modern Western world, who knows how to um, uh, shape uh, the narrative about, or or how to run uh, even a, a personal brand or the nation brand, right? And to, 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 to uh, very consciously shaping it. Uh, so this is this is a very uh, interesting topic about the, this narration, the visual narration, narrations especially. Um, there is also the issues of uh, the issue of uh, of fake news, which is also a very uh, very well discussed or highly discussed topic in uh, in Poland. Uh, the the role of uh, social media and the uh, information being spread in social media by the uh, russian trolls uh, were very um, became a, 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 a part of a, a public discussion very soon after the war um, the war started and i think that uh, as a society we're pretty well uh, educated or maybe not educated, but somehow aware of this uh, danger of uh, um, of this false information, fake news, and uh, yeah, the, the Russian trolls uh, running their uh, accounts on Twitter and other other social media. We, uh, from my another again personal perspective, I can give an example of the also the very early uh, uh, action that we uh, that we took uh, my company along with um, with brand brand 24 it's called brand 24 in Poland this is an uh, internet um, analyzing uh, company which is also running in uh, it's also running in in, in uh, internationally in the US as well we established uh, a service and uh, called uh, report a troll where the, the users could uh, users can report suspicious uh, news from various social media uh, channels and then uh, to get it verified by the uh, group of analytics analysis analytics from, from from the company so there and there were many uh, there were much stress put on this uh, uh, information war and uh, to uh, being aware of uh, the fact that the war is not only physical it's not only about bullets and uh, it's not only uh, taking place like hundreds of kilometers from the border, but it's it's very real. It's hybrid here in our screens, actually. Ab absolutely. By the way, I love the term babushka, um, which just in case our listeners uh, don't know that term, that's sort of a grandma-like figure. Like the like public, public figure of grandma, who is not a grandma to specific individual oh, but right, it's more right, like right. a social institution of uh, older elder woman who's uh, who's wise but who's also um witty i would say yeah well my grandmother actually was was born in kiev and she came to the united states in 1900 when she was a little girl so she wasn't a babushka then but when I got to know her, you know, very well in the 1950s and 60s, she was like 100% babushka. Uh, so it, it's great just to hear you use that term. But I mean, I, I hope our, our viewers and listeners caught that. What you were saying is, I, you, you were saying it's, a, it's part of the narrative that babushkas are giving poison, 
pierogies. Yeah, the, the pierogies. Uh, so is is that a rumor or is that true? Uh, well, I uh, it was verified as far as I know that uh, there was a real accident incident of uh, Russian soldiers being fed with uh, some uh, poisoned food. Uh, it was also repeated uh, in the later days, but yeah, there was this original incident that, as to my knowledge, was was confirmed. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Uh, we should we should give credit to those babushkas. They're definitely helping out in, in their own way in a in a major way. Yeah, but nevertheless, like uh, the the story made its uh, impact. It was like also it went viral, and uh, this heartwarming story of uh, elder generation being um, involved in this conflict and trying to be helpful in their own way. Uh, it really, I think, it really made an impact, and it was a, it became a part of this bigger narrative of this uh, clever. Uh, a clever nation of Ukraine, uh, of their uh, strong and uh, um, full of humor in that citizens were all taking part, were trying to be involved in their own way. Well, I think you're completely right. And certainly here in the United States, uh, we thought in the very beginning that Ukraine obviously is a much smaller country than Russia. And the very fact that they were able to hold off the Russian invasion. And every time I talk to someone in Ukraine or Poland, I, I always tell them I, I, something that really impressed me, like maybe the first or second day of the war was a, a Ukrainian I'm not sure whether it's a general or maybe he was the mayor of Kiev or something, but he was saying, so how long do you think Kiev is going to be able to hold out against the Russian attack? And he just looked into the camera and said, forever, Kiev is not going to fall. Kiev is not going to be taken by the Russians. Now, nowadays, that seems clear. But back then, in the very first days of the war, you know, here in the United States, we were told, oh, my God, you know, they put these pictures on the screen and you see these like red, you know, Russian forces uh, on the map approaching Kiev from like three or four sides. Uh, so I think, though, you are hitting on a very important point. There's the reality of what actually happens. But in many ways, just as important as the reality is the narrative that grows up around the reality. And now the narrative is, you know, Ukraine is a courageous nation. It, it's based on the reality that it is. But in many ways, the narrative is more powerful uh, than the reality. And, uh, you know, there's also, you've probably heard this, uh, you know, an old cliche. It's a cliche because it's true. And the cliche is the victors are the ones who write the history, not the losers. So, for example, we know that just to go back to World War II, that the Allies won World War II. We eventually beat Nazi Germany and Japan. But we don't really know here in the West what their side of the story was. I mean, we know the horrible things both of those countries did. But that's because their voices, you know, were never really uh, heard. And you could say on the one hand, who cares? But on the other hand, in terms of getting an accurate reflection of history, you, you shouldn't expect to get it in the narratives that, that spin around these various very important events. L let me sort of segue into something else, which what you're saying strongly implies. So as someone who was already working in and studying social media. What the Chinese have a saying that a crisis is a kind of opportunity. And, I, and so it shouldn't always be feared and avoided. And I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. And I see that you're already thinking about the importance of narrative and how the Ukrainian story is coming out to the world. 
What more has the war done in terms of you as a scholar who's already interested in social media brought you to think about? Well, um, uh, I didn't uh, think uh, or I didn't find a way yet to include this um, experience in my PhD te thesis and I'm not sure if I'm, I'm gonna do that. Maybe it will uh, somehow come up later. But um, what's interesting for me at this point is uh, looking at the academia and all the various activities that are uh, taking place uh, in the, or that are being established in the face of war and uh, I'm trying to um, catch up with uh, all the very all the activities and the, the uh, yeah the activities that the, especially the Polish the, the Warsaw University is uh, running um, both for Polish and uh, of course Ukrainian students who are um, attending our university. We for example we have uh, in my um, in my institute that I institute that I graduated from, the Institute of Polish Culture, we have uh, this uh, seminar um, set up. It's called uh, University uh, During the War, uh, and this is the seminar that is trying to somehow reflect on uh, this uh, situation of. Uh, academics, both uh, Polish, uh, Russian, Ukrainians, uh, uh, who are uh, involved in this, uh, in this whole crisis. Um, it has just started a few weeks ago and it's gonna last until uh, September or yeah, I guess September. Uh, so we'll see what we, uh, what we are gonna come up with. Uh, but as a person, it's uh, and or as an aspiring academic, uh, it's all happening so fast. That we, as we mentioned before, it's still so uh, somehow unrealistic to uh, to think about that and try to include that all that experience in your like both personal, professional and academic life. I, uh, I wrote you in one of the emails that we exchanged that I feel like uh, we are living this uh, somehow double reality. And in one reality, we have to, you know, deal with the deadlines, uh, submit papers and uh, teach students, uh, uh, keep up with, uh, with the schedule and everything. And in this other parallel life, we have to, you know, organize formula for the infants being uh, uh, brought from the uh, from the like the half heart of the of a crisis, or trying to 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 organize uh, flats for refugees and. Uh, fundraise some money for the basic needs of the people who has just like left their lives who that were not that different than ours as we as as we as we as we uh, think about it yeah <laughs> no that's a that's a very good answer uh, it, it's tough, as you know. I uh, I've been I, I just finished writing uh, an article about the explosive growth of social media, and when I started writing the article, way past the deadline when it was due, because I, I'm like a real specialist of doing everything the last minute or even later than it's uh, that it's due. But the original article was you know going to be talking about. Donald Trump and the COVID pandemic. I mean, two separate but interrelated things. And I'm, as I'm writing the article, Russia you know, invades Ukraine 
And then on top of that, Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter. And, you know, the 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 board of directors is pretty much accepted his bid. It still has to be approved by the shareholders. So, I, you know, I was actually happy because uh, it got me even more excited about writing the article. But so we have much material. But for me, it's still uh, it's not still not easy to uh, keep that distance from it because we are living it now and yeah i know that we are having so much going on in social media uh, world like uh, the EU, uh, eu parliament has uh, just entered mastodon for example which is very interesting of course, also but uh, for now we are i feel like so much involved in it that it's hard for me to you know step back and look at it from uh, the broader perspective, so to say, and how to, you know, reflect on that and uh, formulate some hypotheses. Maybe we need some some more time. But yeah, I, I feel that that we, uh, there's so much going on, so much new phenomena uh, emerging that we are all eager to somehow grab it uh, in this very hot moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here, here's some unasked for advice regarding uh, completion of your PhD dissertation. Since I went through that, God knows, 500 years ago, I discovered that I could still be writing my dissertation this very day, all these years later, because again, my dissertation is about the evolution of media and media continued to evolve. And I remember I'm working on it and working on it. And every time I think it was finished, something else would happen. Uh, you know, there'd be an article in the New York Times or something on television. And finally, I said to myself, look, enough is enough. And Winston Churchill is credited with making the statement. I don't know if he really did make it because he's credited with just about everything. But one of the best statements that he is given credit for is a book is never finished. It's merely abandoned. So he has a point. So my best advice to you regarding your uh, PhD dissertation is don't abandon it in terms of just throw it away. But when you get to a certain point, chances are it's finished. And yeah, there'll be more than enough things to keep writing about, but get that out of your life, out of your way. Because then suddenly you'll be called a uh, doctor. You, you'll get more respect in restaurants, like when you give them your credit card. They'll say, oh, you know, Dr. Stekko, welcome, da, da, da. They'll, they'll give you better service. So you, you should definitely... <laughs> Do that. Um, do you have any final points uh, or things you'd like to mention in uh, the few minutes we have left? Well, the final points. Uh, it's very uh, <laughs> nice of you to ask me about it, but I'm not sure if I'm uh, entitled to make any final points about the humanitarian crisis. But uh, um, what I can uh, encourage you as uh, people who are watching this uh, whole situation from the uh, longer distance uh, in terms of geography but also uh, from the social historical context uh, yeah try to maybe try to uh, take a closer look or a more in-depth look at this, at this whole crisis that is much more complex than uh, that it looks like. And uh, uh, another more, let's so to say, uh, less serious point, uh, memes and uh, funny videos are not that bad. Uh, uh, source of information, especially uh, now when they are well curated by, uh, of course, by Ukrainian side, but also uh, other uh, nations and uh, agendas, pro-Ukrainian agendas that are involved in uh, that are involved in this um, also narrative war, and. Uh, 
so yes, uh, I think that memes and videos and uh, all the uh, grassroots um, activities of uh, local observers are worth noticing. Mm, uh, and uh, there is a great opportunity for uh, social media uh, researchers, visual uh, narrative researchers, social, yeah, and others to uh, to find out some very interesting topics uh, for researchers. So, uh, yeah, when we uh, uh, when we finally get this distance someday maybe uh, we'll find out many many interesting topics to reflect on but yeah now we are all in this high level of emotions of in, being engaged in various uh, various activities uh, but yeah uh, i actually thought of one final question which i thought of earlier and then i got distracted by something else, the story of my life. Uh, if you feel comfortable about this, how has your now six-year-old daughter reacted to this, her, herself, uh, her friends? Uh, you know, as a mother, this must be something that's really very important in your life. Um, yeah, so my, my daughter is, is six now, so she's uh, pretty aware of what's going on here in Poland, especially because we uh, we are also hosting uh, a family of uh, um, of a mother and her three-year-old child. Uh, so we are very like, per we are personally involved in that. So we already established some new uh, family-like even bonds because uh, Natalia, who is she's coming from Kiev and she's living in a in an apartment that we inherited from uh, our great grandfather. So we became very close. And uh, another source of information about the war for her is: uh, Are their peers in? In kindergarten, because Polish kindergartens has uh, begun to uh, enroll um, enroll children from Ukraine coming here, and uh, there are already uh, three, yeah, three or four, three, three uh, kids from Ukraine uh, attending uh, her group in kindergarten. So you know they are now. Um, they have like the daily contact. They are learning their languages, uh, one another. My daughter has already uh, learned some Ukrainian and Russian words. Some of the children are Russian speakers, so they are also learning uh, learning Russian. So yeah, we are trying to, we are not hiding anything from her and she's watching the news along with us. And uh, we decided to, uh just you know go with the flow and uh try to uh answer any questions she may have and we are trying to uh, include her in all the activities that we are also involving uh because uh from but this is only my attitude and i'm not encouraging uh, other parents to do that but uh, I think that we cannot um, and we shouldn't protect um, protect children like to from uh, what's going on uh, and they will know it anyway. We are surrounded with the news, with the people talking about that, with the media broadcast. So there's no point <laughs> trying hiding it. And uh, I think that children also uh, are stronger than we think. And they are much more interested in what's going on than we may think. And uh, they deserve uh, information, of course, uh, mm, targeted to their level, I would say. But uh, we, uh, I think that we as adults underestimate 
their um, the, the level of their uh, consciousness about the situation. I agree with you 100%. By the way, I uh, we don't have time to talk about this now, but maybe some other time. Uh, years ago, I met a woman in England, a researcher. I was giving a lecture about something. And I, she came up to me and she wanted to tell me about an organization that she was part of. And the gist of the organization was to give children who were like five, six, seven, eight years old, uh, they, that they would be treated as full citizens. Now, that might sound crazy, but the truth of the matter is, you know, in most countries, you have to be 18 or even 21, you know, to receive all rights. Biologically, human beings are adults by the time they're 12, 13. And as you, you may know, Jean Piaget says it's even earlier that human beings develop adult cognitive abilities. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised, you know, uh, to hear what you're saying about your six-year-old daughter. Maybe you heard about of that, that, uh, that, that was, but it's the uh, example from the pandemic uh, times, but there was uh, this initiative or of Finnish government that organized a special uh, meeting uh, being broadcasted by all the national media and everything, the, um, the meeting with uh, with children uh, where all the issues cons- uh, connected with uh, pandemic with the sanitary restrictions and everything were presented uh, especially for <laughs> this group of uh, of of the society so uh, it was um, very interesting for me and very uh, somehow even heartwarming that uh, we as uh, modern uh, western societies are finally um, uh, acknowledging and recognizing children as an important uh, group of of the society that deserves uh, full information, that deserves being included in uh, in various actions. So uh, I think we, uh, we, we could think about something similar uh, in this case of this another horrible, uh, horrible uh, crisis uh, going on. Of course, we have uh, many uh, initiatives uh, addre- that is addressing this, uh, this, uh, this group of society. We have uh, already books uh, being published, um, the books about uh, the, the Ukrainian crisis for both Ukrainian and Polish uh, Polish children. But yeah, I think we need uh, some more systemic uh, systemic um, propositions for them. Yeah, you know, there's a book, I think it's called Centuries of Childhood, and I can't remember the author of, of the book, but he he was an historian of painting, and uh, one of the, and this goes back three or four decades. This book shows that in the Middle Ages, when portraits of families were painted, and of course this was before photography, the children in the portraits didn't look like children; they looked just like very short adults. Mini versions. Yeah. yeah. So back and so so for many years, people who didn't really understand what was going on, they thought, okay, these painters in the Middle Ages just didn't have the talent to paint the kid. But I think it was back then they had a more accurate view of children that they did have, you know, the ability to to do all these things. Maybe his name was Philip Philip Arias. Philip Arias. Yeah. It's Philip Arias, I guess. That's yeah, right. but like his point is that. Uh, the childhood as an institution is a very modern idea, but what you say is also accurate, I guess, uh, that uh, maybe maybe back those days, we, we as, a, as people, as a species, had this uh, feeling or this, uh, yeah, this feeling that there is something very, um, that is, there is something in um, uh, very human in children. Like it, there is some core that is that we all share, despite the actual biological age. 
No, absolutely. And the problem with many adults is that they've lost or suppressed that childhood sense, which is a very wonderful thing. My wife and I have a, a six-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, two, two grandsons, and, and even the two-and-a-half-year-old, but certainly the six-year-old, I mean, you know, we could have a conversation with him like a third person right, you know, on this uh, Zoom call, and he would have points to make. And, he, you know, he also is aware of what's going on. Anyway, listen, thanks very much for this interview. I, I really enjoyed it, and I'm sure our viewers will as well. And you take care, and we'll be in touch. Yes, thank you very much for hosting me, and I hope that I uh, provided you and your viewers with some on-site insights that may be interesting. Of course, there is uh, so much more to say and so much more we could uh, share, but um, I, f I hope that I could be uh, helpful in some way. You're extremely helpful, and we'll definitely do this again sometime. The Light on Light Through podcast. And I hope you enjoyed that interview. I'll be back here soon with a review of, let's see, I think the man who fell to earth, the third episode. And I'll also be reviewing some other great television shows as well in the weeks ahead. And I'm going to keep doing these interviews. I'm getting some great response from what I've already posted. And I hope you've been finding these interviews enlightening and in many ways heartbreaking as well. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and do whatever you can to help those brave people fight off those depraved Russian invaders of their country, Ukraine. AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.